0: Hello and welcome to Science Matters, the podcast from the Georgia Tech College of Sciences. I'm Renee San Miguel. Simon Sponberg loves to study how insects like moths and cockroaches move. The Georgia Tech professor discovers the physics and mathematics hidden within the biological systems of these creatures. And what he learns about animal locomotion could mean better robots, better prosthetic devices, better vehicles. So yes, he loves studying how bugs move. What he doesn't love are the actual bugs themselves.
1: I would love to be able to tell you that I was one of these kids who like when I was six I went out and like there was a cool animal moving around and I was like oh my god that's what I'm going to do for my life Mm -hmm. but it's absolutely not the case I had a traumatic experience with a cicada when I was six I hate insects in general in that sense like I had a really it was disturbing but I've come to appreciate aspects of them and I think actually that's maybe more relatable than the person who just... so I'm not a natural
0: entomologist, I wish I was. So just what was that traumatic cicada experience? You'll have to wait a little while for the answer. Sponberg may not be a natural entomologist, that is someone who studies insects professionally, but he is an assistant professor in the schools of physics and biological sciences. He spent most of his career at the intersection of those disciplines as he discovers how creatures move on the ground or through the air and what adaptations they've made along the way. Sponberg studies what's called the physics of living systems. Here's how Sponberg explains it in a Georgia Tech video from late 2017 the control systems of animals are exquisitely tuned to the
1: environment and the behavior that the animal is trying to execute in that environment. And I think one of the big challenges now is to figure out how are the neural systems of animals and the mechanical systems of animals working together in order to enable this really sort of exquisite level
0: of uh, adaptation and behavior that we see in the natural world. Sponberg wrote about the challenges and opportunities in that research for a September 2017 Physics Today cover story called the emergent physics of animal locomotion. In it, he writes of measuring the neural commands cockroaches send to their own muscles, of using robotic flowers to determine how huge hawk moths track their dinner, or having those moths play video games. That's right, video games, in virtual reality even. But we begin with a lizard, the gecko, and its superpower, one of the first aspects of the physics of living systems that Sponberg studied as an undergraduate at Lewis and Clark College in Oregon
1: we were asking the question of how geckos stick to walls and it's very interesting because geckos will stick to almost any surface and if you know much about chemistry that's sort of hard things tend to be pretty yeah. chemistry dependent and uh so dependent on the particular structures of what makes up the gecko's foot and the wall um there's a few things they won't stick to like teflon and that ends up being a key to what's happening sure. and it so we were interested in how geckos were sticking to walls and that sort of evoked my imagination of understanding not just how geckos could adhere, but how they could detach as well, how they could actually do movement. Because if you're an animal, sticking is really good until you need to be unstuck. But you have to be able to move on that wall right. to get away yeah. from prey if I'm only whatever. just stuck in one place for the entire yeah. time, that's not so good, yeah. right? <laughs> and they can actually attach and detach their feet in as little as 40 thousandths of a second. Wow. Um, so they can run quite agilely. Um, despite using that adhesion. Um, And they can stick by a single toe, which is cool too. Um, (laughs) And in fact, at their theoretical maximum, two two 70 gram geckos could support my weight.
0: But again, that's theoretical. The gecko's skeleton couldn't support a person's weight. But its tiny feet support its own weight while hanging on a wall, largely due to something called van der Waals forces, which is how two separate surfaces interact with each other on a molecular level depending on their distance. If I stick my put my hand
1: on a table, I actually have lots of van der Waals forces between my hand and my ta- and the table. But at the molecular level, my hand and the table are very very rough, okay. and so I'm barely actually touching the table. Um, and the gecko sort of overcomes this problem because it's got little hairs on the bottom of its toes, and they split yeah. to a bunch of little split ends. And then those split ends split another ten, hundred, thousand times.
0: And they can get traction. They can grab. Or, they, they,
1: they get so fine that the finest tip is in, smaller than, in diameter than the wavelength of visible light,
0: Whoa.
1: 300 nanometers. And it basically allows them to make intimate contact with anything they touch. Oh, man. And so they touch the surface, and if they orient their toes right, basically they have to press in and slide a little, then their hairs get really pressed up against the surface, and they adhere by Van der Waals. But then if they change the orientation of their foot, they start to separate. And as soon as they start to separate, because it's Van der Waals forces, they detach really fast.
0: Sponberg's recent research uses robotic flowers to study how hawk moths zero in on food sources. 21st century robotics and some old school mathematics help him decipher all the complex biophysical behaviors in these flying insects. These are really large moths about the size of my hand and they can
1: hover in mid-air and hovering in mid-air looks like one of these very peaceful calm behaviors it's actually dynamically unstable mm-hmm. what that means is that if the moth doesn't actively detect something about its movement and do something every couple of wing strokes it's going to crash oh. so i now know in the context of that moth hovering in midair, air i don't have to ask a question about what does its brain do i can ask a question instead of what does its brain have to do yeah. And that sounds like a very similar question but it's a little different and I'll explain why. What I mean is like if I know about the physics of the moving moth and how if it gets buffeted by a little bit of wind, how it gets knocked off balance, Sure. now I know if it stays hovering. I know from the physics of how it moves that it has to be its brain that's updating the mechanics and producing the force to stabilize it. Okay. So we can say instead we can ask how does the brain stabilize the moth? Or how does the brain let the moth actively trap one of these flowers in its environment that's moving around?
0: When it's doing that, is that a function of adaptation, adapting to its environment? Haven't you also studied the hawk moth's eyes and and the role they play in all this? Right, so in order
1: to respond to the environment, the moth has to take in information about its environment and then use that information in order to stabilize Mm -hmm. itself. And so one thing that we've been doing is we've been Um, we've been exploring how that's done and so basically what we do is we we make a bunch of games for our moth to play and one of the games that we make is we make a little robotic flower and we put a little nectary on that robotic flower that the moth can feed from and you might say Simon why aren't you just using real flowers and the moths will feed from real flowers but when we have a robotic flower now I can very precisely and Uh repeatably control what the flower is doing Mm -hmm. and that allows me to in a dynamic sense prescribe what the moth is responding to, and so I can very repeatedly measure how the moth responds to the same input. So we have these robotic flowers that wiggle around. It turns out the moth can track these flowers up to 10 times a second wiggling back and forth, which means that the moth can go back back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, and change its direction up to 10 times a second in midair while it's hovering, Mm -hmm. which to me is a sort of remarkable behavior. But again, it's easy to say biological systems are complex. So how do we sort of understand that? It turns out um, not just are they doing that and that sort of an impressive behavior from how they move, they actually have to see that flower. And they typically do all of this behavior in light levels where you would have a hard time seeing the hand in front of your face. Mm -hmm. So at light levels that are below dusk, levels, typically early, uh, bright starlight kind of things. That's actually where they prefer to forage because they're nocturnal or crepuscular animals is Mm -hmm. the technical term, they're twilight flyers. And so they're out there foraging around on their flowers and they go up to feed from a flower and they don't land on the flower, they stick this long proboscis that they have curled up like a party favor in their mouth Mm -hmm. and they stretch it out and they stick it into a flower and then they feed from it and they feed from it while they're hovering in midair. So in fact, many people, when they see these animals, think they're hummingbirds, because they're about the same size. In fact, they use very similar physics. Yeah. Um, so they're, they're hovering around and feeding from these flowers. So one of the questions that we had is how do they adjust to this low light level? Because they also fly in brighter light conditions. Um, and this is an interesting challenge from, a, um, from sort of a biophysics perspective, because light is maybe the most variable quantity you deal with on a day-to-day basis. You don't notice it because your eyes are pretty good at adjusting for light, but moths eyes are incredible at it.
0: The hawk moths eyes, brain, and wings are all reacting to feedback, with the animal using that feedback to determine what works for it and how it will move in the future. Sponberg believes researchers have to delve deeper into this feedback to learn more about animal locomotion. He is now able to design feedback into his experiments sometimes in the most unexpected ways. Here's the weird
1: thing about the flower. If you think about it for a minute, the moth is not seeing the flower's motion. The moth is seeing the flower's motion relative to its motion, its own motion. So if the flower moves one centimeter to the right and the moth moves one centimeter to the right, now the moth says, okay, I'm just right in front of the flower. So what the moth cares about is the deviation between the two. And that's actually what its visual system sees. And that's a function of the feedback loop of its motion to the flower's motion. And this is one of those important, and in fact, if we had not done that appropriate feedback in our models, we would have entirely made the wrong predictions. It was only by doing that that we were able to make these very precise prediction. So feedback is something we don't study all the time in dynamical systems and feedback in in physics, but this is very important here. And um, there's other longer-term feedbacks like what you're talking about, which is learning. (laughs) And that's something that we're setting out to start studying right now in the moth and what happens, how does it adjust over time if things like if it starts struggling. And one of the ways that we're doing that is we're making moths play video games in virtual reality.
0: No, we don't think sponberg's moths will be enjoying super mario brothers anytime soon but by tethering the moth to a joystick of sorts sponberg scores bonus points by using virtual reality to adjust what the moth is seeing in the experiment and then measuring its movements and recording how it adapts
1: in virtual reality you can change the physics the animal experiences oh that's okay, okay. so what you can do is you can think about it for a second if you imagine you're sitting there so sit there for a second now turn 90 degrees to your right. Mm -hmm. That's visually, that's like if I picked up the entire world and moved it 90 degrees to your left and you sat still. So in virtual reality, what we can do is we can say, okay, well, what happens if you're sluggish? What happens if you suddenly, which is sort of like what happens if I just increase your mass all of a sudden, Mm -hmm. which happens to the moth. They eat 50% of their mass in about a minute. They so we can say okay well now if the moth tries to turn 90 degrees to its right we're only going to move the world 45 degrees to its left and we can ask questions about how it learns to compensate for these changes and how responsive the world is or what
0: the physics of the world is around it's it. It's got a heavier body it has to navigate through yeah. that. Exactly. And then you're going one direction and it's starting to go another. A virtually heavy a virtually, body. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right.
1: And so what that, to go back to what we were talking about, right, we were saying what's, what I'm interested in and I think one of the major principles of organismal physics is asking these questions about how do you get behavior out of the interaction of the brain and the muscular system, and the physics of the body, and the physics of the environment around it, like the air around the moth. And one of the really good ways to do that is to change one of those and look how the others
0: compensate. Sponberg believes using robots, or robophysics, along with the study of feedback will get researchers closer to answering questions about how animals move. And the potential applications of that research? If we understand that better, we typically are going to start being able to engineer better
1: systems. So what happens is in robo-physics and biological inspired robots and such, we are trying to understand biological systems or physical mechanisms using robots. And along the way, lo and behold, we tend to make a lot of new insights into how better to design robots, Mm -hmm. so that's a good example. Another thing is if we're learning about how the brain typically works with a body, that has very natural applications to neuroengineering, to prosthetics, both of which are very big strengths here at Georgia Tech. So I, I'm actually partial. I'm, I have an adjunct appointment in biomedical engineering for okay. exactly that reason. I have a bioengineering student working in my lab mm-hmm. who's trying to understand the mechanisms of how these insect wings are uh, beat at high frequencies, and it's not because we think that like what we really need is more like robotic insects flying around. That's not the the major rule. The major idea is that the mechanism that they're using is enormously useful from a power perspective and a speed perspective. So insects have solved this challenge of being both fast and using relatively low power, and that's something that we would just like to understand. How the heck does that work? And everything
0: that all the research that you've conducted, all the work that you've done, um, has it helped you deal with that that traumatic cicada incident from your <laughs> youth?
1: I appreciate those animals very much. Uh, now, the, the experience that I had was I was actually sort of, uh, I, I saw all these, I, I was living in New Jersey at the time, and the, one of the major cicada events hit, and so there was a bunch of... Um, shed exoskeletons and I was going out like picking them up and looking at them and such. So maybe I was pretty curious in them, I don't know, I don't quite remember I was sick. But one of them hadn't fully separated from the cicada, so I reached for it and the eyes lit up and I have this sort of (laughs) nightmarish vision of like red eyes looking at me and then the sound going on, the cicada sound is very loud. But boy do I appreciate that now because how do you make that sound when you're that small? Yeah. Right, and that's a loud an interesting question. Too. Right, I mean, it's, it's that it's... loud and it's very high frequency. Yeah. Well, how do you do it? That's a very you know. So these kinds of questions of how how do organisms do this kind of thing, especially when it you know, it, well, there's, uh, when when uh, all these amazing behaviors and motion and sound and perception that that is available yeah. in the biological world. And I think the really exciting thing now is that there is a lot. To be done from a physics perspective with respect to those things today, given not just the tools but the perspectives that we have.
0: That's Simon Sponberg, assistant professor in the Schools of Physics and Biological Sciences. The website for his Agile Systems Lab studying the physics and physiology of animal motion is at s1. Dot Sponberg, S-P-O-N-B-E-R-G, dot His Physics Today cover story, The Emergent Physics of Animal Locomotion, can be found in the September 2017 issue. I'm Renee San Miguel, and you've been listening to Science Matters from the Georgia Tech College of Sciences.